This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, this sucks. Get into it in the podcast. Yeah, well, wh- well, why don't we just uh, why don't we just get rolling, eh, Pete? Yeah, cool. Yeah, All right. Absolutely. Well, let's just start from the beginning then, uh, Dan. Maybe maybe before we get into all the tick stuff, uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of where you grew up and that sort of thing and and where you're coming from. Okay, sure. No, that's great. Um, I actually spent a good portion of my early childhood down in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, my dad was a, a, a very well-known infectious disease specialist and actually worked as the director for the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease uh, for the government, which is now being, uh, that role is now being held by Tony Fauci, who was uh, one of my dad's best friends and was best man at both Tony's weddings. So I'm sure you've heard of Dr. Fauci up in Canada. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time with my dad out in the outdoors. So I really never picked up a, a gun or got exposed to hunting till I was in my late 20s. So I had no experience prior to that. But once I once I experienced it for the first time, I was I was hooked. And I you couldn't get me um, get me away from it. I, I had an opportunity to live a few years out in the western New York uh, area. And you know, hunting deer hunting is a way of life out there. So just by me being around some of the local people who I became friends with, um, I, I got exposed and introduced to, to hunting primarily with a shotgun at that time, because that was the only gun hunting that was allowed in that particular area. So um, uh, when I moved back to the Boston area, which is where I've lived since I was 13, um, uh, what I discovered was that there was a couple of things going on at, at that time. And this was this would be in the mid 90s. 
the, uh, the deer populations in our suburban settings were exploding. And as a result, uh, deer and other wildlife, and as a result, the tick populations, which were already some, at some of the highest levels, comparatively speaking to other states, um, particularly uh, you know, states in the Southwest of the US, um, the Northeast was like a hotbed for tick activity. And then it even got worse. So this was coinciding at the same time. So we had these, these rapid explosion of populations of deer in, you know, right outside of Boston, in the suburbs, in these neighborhoods. And in, in Eastern Massachusetts, there are several um, or many, I would say, affluent areas where people have a little bit bigger pieces of land, you know, several, several acres and up. Um, and they were experiencing some, some difficulties uh, dealing with the deer. I mean, you're talking 25 to 30 some odd deer per mile in some cases. Well, it wasn't as bad as in New Jersey or Connecticut in, in certain spots where it was upwards of 90 per mile. Holy. Um, we, oh. we were certainly experiencing some of our own hardships. And the landowners were constantly having to dole out dollars to cover the damage done every single winter uh, when winters were still kind of cold and brutal um, uh, to re replace their landscapes that were destroyed by hungry deer. So I, in my mind, was thinking, all right, well, I don't want to have to drive back to New York for a three-day trip, you know, uh, once or twice a year. I'd like to go hunting all the time. So I took up bow hunting, and I started to think about what could I do that would make this, um, to have access to these people's properties. And so I came up with this idea. What if I had a group of guys and gals that were interested in removing nuisance deer from these private spots. And that seemed to work because at that time, again, the damage was there. We were having a lot of uh, collisions with, with vehicles in our suburbs. And then of course the tick problem was increasing. So with this information, I was able to approach uh, these landowners in a very professional and well, well thought out way to convince them to let me access their property with written permission because that's what we require in Massachusetts. Um, and the, the goal was to remove as many deer, deer, not bucks, not big does, you know, deer, you know, any type of deer. Um, and that would make the landowner, landowners happy. So I created a large network of these properties through a lot of digging and persistence and driving around on weekends and knocking on doors and talking to people. And I was able to get, you know, I think at one point we had close to a hundred properties on, on board. Um, and the permission uh, allowed myself and or one of my qualified assignees to access their property exclusively for a period of one season. And so I had plenty of bow hunters, mostly professional guys that were suburban, uh, living in the suburbs, traveling into Boston, a lot of police, lawyers, uh, doctors even. And um, they would sort of apply for membership into this group. And we had this, we conducted group interviews several times prior to the season at an archery range with a certified archery instructor and a nationally and nationally ranked um, uh, uh, archer. And we would go through an interview process. There would be contracts to sign waivers of liability, um, uh, non-competes and non-disclosures. 
And if these individual applicants became eligible by passing these requirements, and of course a proficiency test, um, they would pay me a service fee for the process to link them up with the landowner. And then, then they would be uh, good to go for the season. So it was great. You know, these guys oh. uh, could, could pop out in the morning. They could even get a deer and get to work by nine or 10 AM. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they could cut, cut out early if they were hunting and still get a hunting and take the kids to hockey practice or wherever, whatever it was. So they loved it. But uh, in the long run, we were causing some ripples within the local hunting community. And there were a lot of old timers that were maybe not necessarily doing things in the correct fashion, abiding by all the, abiding by all the rules and maybe hunting on conservation land or maybe hunting without permission or doing things, you know, baiting or stuff that was just not legal. And so we were actually cast into this role of policing these properties and actually removing uh, other hunters uh, from areas where they shouldn't be. And that created a lot of animosity among the uh, local groups versus me. And, uh, you know, I became, I got on the radar of the local game wardens and they started to harass me. We were getting anonymous calls with uh, false information about that. Our group was, you know, basically terrorizing the deer populations and doing things illegally, which was not true at all. So at some point, I wasn't really making a living at this, but I enjoyed it, but it just became too much of a full-time job for me to handle. So I, I closed it down about five years ago, uh, but I still maintain these properties. Currently, I have 46 ladder stands up in the Boston oh, area in three wow. different zones. And um, so we, we've got uh, cam, I mean, I've got cell cams, maybe close to 30 of them that I run myself. And I hunt with a, cl a close group of friends, five or six guys total, and we all share everything and 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 uh, all help each other out. So it kind of turned out into a nice little little thing to do here. So that you know, and being out there, spending that much time out in the woods and scouting and setting stands, you know, I was getting inundated with ticks, and um, I had been divorced uh, about fifteen years ago. I was raising my boys, my two boys. And I had two dogs and the tick situation was just outrageous. I mean, I was getting covered. So, and, and I'm talking about the, the black legged or the deer tick, which is the most uh, offensive tick that, that in our area. So I know a lot about that particular tick. I may not know so much about the ticks in your particular area, uh, but I can, I can certainly share my experiences and my knowledge of, of the, the ticks that I find in my area. So anyway, I was bringing them in. They were in my truck. They were in my laundry. They were on the kids. They were on the dogs. And I was just freaking out. I wanted to know how can I avoid Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. So I got studying and, and just learned a lot about ticks. Personally, I've been bitten uh, in excess of 220 times by deer ticks in my, wow. my life. Um, I've also had the great pleasure of being able to remove about 3,000 plus uh, live ticks from hosts. A lot of them came off of uh, a harvested deer. Uh, we provide these pregnant live female deer ticks to research uh, facilities so that they could study to see what kind of pathogens are trending and, and, and any other information that they want to gather from, uh, from these local ticks. And um, I just got to thinking, all right, well, you know, how, how do you safely remove a tick? How do you prevent a bite? <clears throat> 
how do you just do normal novel things to protect yourself and your family and your pets? So I was looking at tick removal and I didn't see a lot of good information. I saw a lot of things online, like these gadgets, I'd like to call them uh, the tick key and the ticked off. And they rely on what I call a scoop method for removal. But everybody was saying pointy tweezers. And I'm reading stuff about Burnham and Vaseline and twist them and all this stuff. But the, ex the expert organizations were saying pointy tweezers. I didn't see any. I saw jeweler's tweezers and nail art tweezers. And these were very expensive items. So right here in my studio slash basement, I got to work with all of my design experience, which was none. And I, I molded a, tick, a new tick removal tool out of tinfoil. And that was my prototype. And then it all be, be, began from there. So the end result yeah. is the Tiki's tweezer, which has the scoop method, but it also more importantly has these really fine tips yeah. um, so that you can remove small uh, nymphal stage ticks or get into those tight places. I've had nymphal stage deer ticks, which look like this. Yeah in my belly button. And this is where I had the problem with these spoons and these other gadgets, because I don't <laughs> we even all understand know now, that yeah, we know now that if you agitate a tick while it's feeding, okay, if you agitate that tick, if you press down on it, if you pull it away from its mouth parts, if you get any of what I call yucky tick juice from inside this tick on you, you're exposing yourself to to hazardous germs. So how in God's name are you going to be able to get into your belly button or let's say at the crevice under your arm or right behind your ear with something like this? Yeah, so, it's like an ice cream scoop. Yeah, I mean, even though I did validate the method of scooping, it's clear that a smaller footprint is more effective in getting into to tighter areas. So on animals... What I recommend is using the scoop. Uh, I don't know if you can see these too well, but these are dried up and gorged ticks. Yeah. Um, so I recommend the scoop side for animals on easy, easily accessible areas. So you're basically going to uh, slide under the tick and all you do is lift straight up right. and it'll pop it right out. So that's how it all started. And now we have uh, a licensed product, which is a permethrin treated bandana for dogs. I have this new all-encompassing tick-specific kit. I call it Tick Man Dan in a can. And it answers <laughs> all the questions that you would ever need to know once you discover an attached tick on you. Like, what do you do? What not to do? Don't ever throw away that tick. You always want to save it. There's bags in there for that. What do you, how do you get a risk assessment? Well, based on the type of tick, you want to ID that tick. You want to know what kind of tick it is. You want to know what stage of life it's at. You want to know what geographic region you're from. Then you want to know what diseases are trending in that particular area. And you also want to know how long that tick was feeding. With that information, you can actually give yourself a, a category of risk level, low, moderate, or high. And this is provided free of charge by the University of Rhode Island Stick Encounter Resource Group which is unbelievable. Their content and their resources are fantastic for prevention. And that's provided in the kit 
Plus, you can then, if you determine you're at a high level, if you want to get that tick tested to see what it's carrying, we work with a lab here that's formerly out of UMass in Amherst, and um, they'll, for a fee, provide you with a full screening, uh, depending on what you desire. And uh, with the Tickies promo code, you can get a discount off that. So that's where we're at now. It's taken me about seven years to get here. Um, but uh, I am spreading the word. We're trying to get education out there. So I often say my mission is to provide education, resources, and tools that people and their companion animals can use to prevent illness. And so, you know, that is a good mission for me because I've always had the goal of helping people and making money at the same time. And if I can do that, I, I can sleep well at night. So and that's, that's my story. <laughs> Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's quite the past. So where did you get all this knowledge of ticks? Is this all just self-taught? It's self-taught for many, many years. I've always wow. been interested in, in bugs. Although, you know what, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of spiders, but ticks, I could. <laughs> that, well, aren't, aren't ticks a spider? Yeah, they're part of the arachnid family, which yeah. doesn't make sense to me, but yeah, I, I'm not so good with, with spiders, but ticks, no problem. And yeah, I'm self-taught. I'm not a, I don't, not a formally trained entomologist by any means, but every, I mean, I live ticks, uh, eat, sleep, drink, breathe, <laughs> everything, everything is, is ticks with me. And, and, um, you know, you can see, I've got this yeah. tick watch. Wait, it's going tick, 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 tick. <laughs> everything is tick. I collect them. I've got, you know, uh, so it, it, it's it's an obsession. They're all over, all around my house. They're on my phone. They're on the on the walls. They're. I even have a. I even have tic tattoos. I don't know if you can see these. Oh, oh yeah. What do you think? That's that's something. It's going to be the latest <laughs> trend. Yeah. <laughs> so why are you surprised that ticks are part of the arachnid family? Oh, I'm not surprised. I'm just surprised that. Um, that I'm afraid of spiders. Oh, I see. I, I see what you're saying. I thought you were surprised that they classify because ticks are born. You know, I don't know a lot about ticks, just a little bit, but they're born what with six legs and then they sprout two extra just cause. Yeah. As larval, when they emerge from the egg, uh, the ticks in my area, the deer ticks or the black legged ticks or the Zodi species. As yeah. We well, I think Pete and I were talking, I think that's what we have here. Isn't it Pete? The, yeah. We got deer ticks, black legged ticks. Deer ticks are our main ones. I'm not sure yeah. about the others, yeah. but those well, are the they, ones you'll run across every day. Right. There's uh, in, in the western part of the U.S., there's a western black legged tick. Oh, our, I get you. But it, oh, it's pretty yeah. much, the, they're pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, they seem to be the ones that can handle the most germs within their bodies. So, what we're talking about is viruses, parasites, as well as bacteria, all residing in the mid gut of that tick. And uh, conceivably, one bite could infect you with not only each category, but different types of strains of each type of, of bacterium or virus or, um, or parasite. So it, it's like 15 different diseases around here that you can get from one bite. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, thankfully, but certainly there's a wide array. And that's why testing is important because a parasite and a bacteria, for example, are treated differently. Babesiosis um, is like malaria, and it's not treated with the standard antibiotic that Lyme is. So it's it's helpful for you and your physician to look at 
if it's negative for Lyme or positive for a parasite like Babesia or vice versa, because you, you really don't want to waste time or treat unnecessarily. So that's where testing can come in. Right. Be- what, what are some of the effects of Babesia? Uh, Babesia can be particularly difficult with uh, the older population, the very young, and and people with uh, in, uh, compromised immune systems. Chemotherapy um, can cause, I mean, can exacerbate this problem tremendously. Um, it, it's characterized the same symptoms as malaria, you know, severe chills, severe spikes in fever, um, you know, exhaustion and, you know, achiness. And, and the problem with all these tick-borne illnesses is they all start out the same. So you don't know if you have Lyme, uh, or Powassan, or, you know, anaplasmosis or Rocky Mountain spotted fever, because you all, it all starts out with extreme fatigue. You can have joint pains. I mean, it's just nasty. And, and personally, I've never experienced it, but I do a lot of seminars with support groups and I'm very much uh, tied with some of these foundations that just, you know, I've seen the stories, I've talked to people, I have friends. Um, and there's another tick in our area called the Lone Star Tick, which can actually bite you and then you can become allergic to red meat for the rest of your life. Yeah, I was telling Pete about that one and he didn't <laughs> like it. It's a horrific thing I've ever heard. It's, yeah, and I have a friend who <laughs> suffers from it so bad that if she walks into a restaurant, a steakhouse in particular, where they're cooking, you know, they have the open kitchens yeah. and the smell and the smoke is up, she'll immediately start breaking out in a rash just from the exposure to her Seriously. skin from this. And then she starts getting the symptoms of her in, in her airways uh, just from the, the cooking of it. Yeah, so, it's not curable, is it? Obviously, I don't believe so. It's like developing a peanut allergy or a shellfish allergy. Oh, yeah. oh man. And it that can it certainly can vary among the uh, the victims of that. So some right. people get a minor reaction. Some people could go into anaphylactic shock. And if you don't have your EpiPen, you're in trouble. Right, right. What's the uh, geographical region of that Lone Star tick? Where is it found? Well, the Lone Star tick, the problem with that is it's spreading so rapidly, but it was originally found in the southern part of the U.S. and Texas, you know, being the Lone Star state was a big, um, you know, a, a big area for them. And now they've moved up the mid-Atlantic. They're into our area right now. They're moving up into Maine um, and headed up towards Canada, guys. So just be careful with that one. I think you're safe for a little while, but uh, with climate change and the other um, factors that are involved with the tick proliferation uh it's it's not a question of if it's just a question of when so you guys are still kind of in the safe zone a little bit but uh, things are changing over the over the years for sure i hope they can't handle our cold winters yeah well the thing about cold winters is that these ticks produce not only they produce a lot of unbelievably fascinating uh things and their their bodies have have evolved in such a way but they, their bodies produce something called glycerol, which is an antifreeze for their cells. So they have no problem, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, on the yeah. Canadian border, in the past, surviving. These ticks will live two years. Wow. So the, the issue now becomes, I mean, some do die off, for sure, in these cold uh, winters. But if you have milder winters, less die off, which means more ticks to, to infect you. So... The other fascinating thing about this glycerol 
is while the tick is producing it to keep itself from freezing, if there is a Lyme bacteria present within the tick, it actually feeds off of that glycerol to, uh, to get energy. Wow. So that's a hell of a symbiotic relationship, if you ask me. Pretty wicked little buggers, eh? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to go into it, I can tell you, ask me about the saliva. It's, it's, well, I'm going to, well, my, yeah. here's, here's my, my opinion. Someone has to do something majorly medical with tick saliva. Tick spit is an amazing compound and it has so many different attributes. There's got to be something. I mean, maybe it could cure cancer. I mean, I'm not saying that. Don't quote me on that, but <laughs> I'm giving you an example. There, it, it just has so many different things in it that it, someone's got to be able to find a good use for it. And then the problem would be milking tick spit out of these <laughs> little get enough of it. But no, if we could synthesize a model of, of tick saliva to use in our healthcare, I, I'm just throwing it out there, but I think it's, so, it's amazing. So what stuff. is it about the saliva? That makes it so great. Well, first of all, saliva and other things like this glycerol, but the ticks will will get on you down low. These deer ticks that are my specialty are called questers. The Lone Star tick we referred to earlier is a hunter. So they do, they are equipped with sensory organs. However, the deer tick sensory organs are not as developed or not as sensitive as some of the other species of ticks. So they decide rather than hunt you down on, on a heat signature or a vibration or even carbon, um, carbon, what is it, carbon dioxide, um, they'll just wait on a well-used trail or in a, uh, on a deer path or, or a game trail, and they'll wait with their arms uh, waving out in front of them. And when you walk by, they're so sticky they'll just stick right to you or a fur or whatever. Right. Anything yeah. brushes by, it gets stuck. So um, then they'll start crawling up. And the, the younger a tick is, the lower on the ground it waits. So I never answered your question before. The larval ticks do come out of the egg with six legs. When they have their first blood meal and transition to the nymphal stage, they sprout an extra pair of legs. I don't know why. I don't know what benefit that is, but they just do. And then they're they're um, you know they have eight legs instead of six. So most people look at six-legged things and say insect, and eight-legged things and say arachnid. So uh, the larval ticks will feed on smaller rodents and mammals like mice in particular. And mice naturally have these pathogens within them. And if you have a clean tick that bites a dirty mouse, then the mouse is still dirty, and now the tick is dirty, and the tick can go and bite a clean mouse, and now the tick is oh, still dirty, yeah. and the mouse is now dirty, or or a chipmunk or squirrel or whatever it is, and that's the the they now become what we call competent hosts right. or a host reservoir of the pathogens. So they'll they'll get on you low, they'll climb up, they like to find thin areas of the skin, hard to reach, you know, areas where it's easy to get blood. And the first thing they do when they find a nice spot is they spit. And that's the first step in, uh, in their you know, uh, feeding cycle or, or how they feed. So they'll spit on your skin. So the first compound in that spit is a numbing agent. So that will numb the area. So then yeah, they yeah. mouth parts 
which is uh look at these barbs yeah it looks like a little uh like a chainsaw almost well yes and no but the, and then these are movable parts here these oh yeah glycery this is called the hypostome it's a straw-like structure surrounded by rear-facing barbs these chelicery are actually movable so what they do is they they hook in penetrate the skin extend the hooks catch the skin they pull back which then allows the next side oh yeah Oh, go okay. like this in a sawing motion yeah and every time they're ratcheting further and further into the skin and then those rear facing barbs are holding it tight so you don't want to feel that you i mean you would feel the bite no, under normal circumstances but they spit on it numb it and then they penetrate the skin the um the middle piece here is the only part that enters the skin so ticks do not burrow into you their legs are not into you it's only that like a mosquito it's only that yeah. that hypostome that gets into you now a lot of people think that the ticks are burrowed in because what happens is they create like a little pit in the skin yeah. and then inflammation occurs around it and surrounds oh, i see gotcha. so it appears worse yeah. than it is yeah but um that's the case so yeah i always thought that they dig their head right into you because when you see a picture if you've ever been bit like i've had ticks yeah. on my body that i've seen like that so yeah, that's just the reaction at the bite site. Right. They don't technically have heads. It's sort oh, of yeah. their abdomen down to a uh, extended mouth part area. These are the, some sensory organs here, and then they have some on their legs. But um, they really technically do not have heads. So they spit, they enter your, they penetrate the skin. And then what happens is they have another compound in that saliva that is an antimicrobial but microbial. And what that does is that keeps the body's reaction um, minimal, um, minimized. So it doesn't get all itchy, supposedly not supposed to get all itchy and inflamed and won't get infected while the tick is feeding. So it keeps it nice and clean so that, that they have a good path to feed. Then they'll, they'll secrete another compound, which is a, an anticoagulant to keep the blood, it's an, it's like a blood thinner. They'll keep the blood from scabbing up so that they can continue to feed as long as they're attached and as long as that substance is going back and forth. Um, and actually prior to that, what they do is when they first penetrate, they'll, they'll secrete another substance. It's a glue-like, cement-like substance, which is like stronger than crazy glue. And that fills the spaces in between the barbs and that uh, further secures it to the wall of the skin. And then they can go ahead and feed. And then once they finish feeding, when they're fully engorged, they'll secrete an enzyme that breaks up that glue and they'll be able to drop off and either transition to the next stage of life or as an adult female, um, lay their eggs and then, then they die. Wow. So that's- I get it now. I get all it. Okay. Yeah. All of those things. So, so go ahead, with, with the different types of ticks, the different, if you want to, breeds of ticks i don't know how you want to categorize them do they have specific uh targets like a deer tick well a deer tick seems to jump on everything around here but do they have specific animals that they're trying to feed off of or is a blood host a blood host yeah generally a blood host is a blood host although there are specific types of ticks that i don't know a lot about like the gopher tick or the rabbit tick they seem to be more species specific than the main uh, vectors that 
uh, are our ticks that bite us and our animals. Um, ticks, different species of different ticks will carry different types of pathogens. So for example, the dog tick in our area isn't known for carrying Lyme disease. Although some people think it's possible, they're more prone to carry something called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, um, which is really rare in our area. But um, uh, most ticks will go after anything with blood. So even amphibians, even snakes, uh, lizards, uh, and, and certainly the mammals around here. So um, uh, with the exception of those rabbit ticks and the gopher tick, I, I think in general, they, they don't care as long as it has blood. Right. What's uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? What's the difference? Uh, this is a different disease. What's, what are yeah. some of the complications of this one? Um, well, I, I, again, I don't want to give out any bad information. I'm not in, in incredibly informed on Rocky Mountain Spotted right. Fever, but I believe it is, a, a, and I could be wrong, I believe it's a bacteria from the Rixetia um, family, and it, it can cause striations in the skin. It can cause loss of blood flow to certain areas. Uh, oh, yeah. The story that I remember the most in, in Oklahoma was a, a, mid, a, a young mother of three having to have her, all her limbs amputated as a result of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Oh, I mean, that is an, that's an extreme situation. Typically, you can get it and then be treated and be okay with it. Uh, but if left untreated, you can have all sorts of complications, just like any of the other diseases. But it is more common in, in the southern part of the U.S. and in the southwest. Um, and I don't know the reasons for that, but it is certainly something to be aware of. The good news is that the dog ticks that mostly carry it are a little bit easier to detect as they're on you. They're bigger, they're heavier, you can feel them easier, and um, they, they, they're just easier to, to, to detect. And the longer a tick is attached, the worse it is. So obviously... Um, if you the early detection and removal it is critical how long yeah. of a time how long of a time span between i don't know if diff, the different ticks have different times but when it first like latches on and it starts feeding um how quickly will it transmit uh if yeah. it ha, if it has a disease with it yeah pathogen what how long does it take to get it into you yeah it depends on the uh the type of uh microbe or the or type of pathogen Oh, okay. uh, that's been a topic of contention among the Lyme community for many years. Some researchers are claiming that, oh, you can't get Lyme until 24 to 36 hours after a, a deer tick has been attached. Um, and I always say, look, I don't know about that. But in any event, there's 14 other pathogens that have different transmission times. For example, it has been shown that a Powassan virus can be transmitted within minutes, like 15 minutes of attachment. So you don't want to get into the mindset of, okay, well, this deer tick was on me, but only for 12 hours. So I'm not going to worry about it because what about the others? And what about Powassan? So you can't just say, okay, I'm safe from Lyme and I'm safe from all tick-borne illnesses. It, it's very specific. So again, the rule of thumb, get that tick off as soon as possible and do it correctly because if you don't, if you agitate that tick, if you smother it or burn it or put poison on it or twist it and twirl it around in circles, I've seen that out there. Um, and it's particularly if you use regular tweezers instead of the sharp pointy ones, 
you could easily rupture that tick or or squeeze it even i mean it's like it's a bag of fluid with a hollow tube into your system what are you gonna what happens when you squeeze it yeah squirt uh, everything into you yeah i mean it's possible but any exposure to that yucky tick juice could be bad so um my my thoughts are even if you're let's say you're out camping you discover an attached tick you don't have a tickies tool to use uh, get it off and do it as best as you can because it's more of a risk to leave it on it and wait, you know, and wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have the proper tool than it is to scrape it off. And you know, if you do break off the mouth part, I wouldn't freak out about it. Um, it's it, once the body of the tick is removed, you're at no further risk of exposure. So I got in trouble for this from somebody who was telling me I was giving bad information. They, they they thought that they could continue to get sick if you remove the body of the tick. And I was saying, no, you've already been exposed as much as you're going to be when you mm-hmm. remove the body of that tick. Nothing you know, else the damage has already yeah. been done, yeah. but yeah. you can't get more from it. So the, the little hypostome is like a little splinter in your skin and it'll come out or you can pick it out. But, you know, you're at risk of a local infection, not necessarily a, a systemic one like, you know, a tick-borne illness. So how long do ticks feed generally? Oh, yeah. Uh, the ticks will feed depending on the stage of life. Um, you know, the younger the tick, usually maybe it's a little quicker. But on a deer, an adult female deer tick, they can feed for five to seven days. Wow. It depends on where they are, how, how good is the blood flow. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, uh, the, again, the stage of life of the tick. But, but yeah, it's, it's days. So, um, you know. Yeah. Hopefully you find it. I mean, and I, I always say, you know, tick man, Dan says, do your daily tick checks and don't neglect your crevices. And that is an important battle cry for everybody. If we got into these little lifestyle changes, especially guys like us who are outside exposed all the time. uh, And it's not only because for us, it's, it's bringing it into the house for the pets and the family. Um, You want to always take a couple of just easy precautions when you're coming in, you know, either right when you get in the door or right before you get in the door, take off all your clothes. I say, get naked. And then what you do is take those clothes, just throw them in a hot dryer and just tumble them for 15 minutes or so. That'll kill any tick. Ticks are very susceptible to humidity levels. That'll kill any ticks on there. And then uh, while you're naked, you know, go take a shower or check yourself. And if you check yourself in the right way, you know, you'll discover any attached ticks or crawling ticks, and you can dispose of those crawling ticks. Don't dispose, ever dispose of a, an attached tick, just in case. Um, I've got ticks in bags all over my <laughs> kitchen and bulletin board and everywhere else you can think of. So, uh, you know, and, and I always, uh, I, I often recommend that you put a note in front of the toilet where you can see it when you're sitting down doing your stuff. And it says, here I sit and wonder why I have to check for ticks where the sun don't shine. And then proceed <laughs> to examine all of your private goodies to make sure there are no hitchhikers on your junk because ticks like your junk. And, you know, if you think of the, I know they're kind of silly, but it, it, it might stick in somebody's mind and it might cause somebody to do something that they would have forgotten to do or not necessarily would yeah. have done on their own. And that could help save somebody from unnecessary suffering because if you just do that every day you'll 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 find something that you normally wouldn't have and you you know who knows what the result could have been okay so going on the heat thing if uh we've been having a lot of forest fires and stuff like that out in bc the last couple of years 
a lot of places are actually it's not just here um those little bastards have a way of hiding like burrowing into the ground or something like that or that clean out a lot of the ticks that are uh, awaiting in the grasses and stuff like that i know you're always going to have money animals and stuff but will it thin them out substantially in an area if a wildfire kind of i believe so i believe that burning a clear cutting or burning uh what they used to do in the past on the farmlands really helped with the tick populations um you know especially if the burning occurs at a time where they're not necessarily hunkered down under the leaf litter and and it depends on the kind of fire and all that stuff but i think in general brush fires are a really good way to get rid of ticks uh for sure they don't like the heat they don't like that dry uh um uh dry levels of humidity so um yeah absolutely what about water same with water they drown uh, it's funny the another uh adaptation or or evolutionary thing about ticks is that they breathe through little holes in their abdomens called spiracles and this tick may only breathe you know a couple of times every hour um so they can withstand uh being flushed they can live underwater or be fine for several days so water is not necessarily the enemy of, of a tick as the way fire would be. Well, how long do ticks live? Well, I guess what, what's the stage of a tick's life? I guess that's a better question. Okay. So we have four stages. We have egg, larva, nymph, and adult. Uh, the adult female deer ticks will feed three times. When they come out as a larva, they'll need a blood meal to transition to the next stage and, and so on. Um, uh, and uh, uh, adult female ticks will take a last blood meal that will nourish the growth of the two to 3,000 eggs that they can lay uh, each, and then they die. The males are more concerned with mating at that time, the adult males, rather than feeding. Uh, but they may take a couple of bites, which apparently can stimulate the production of their little sperm pack that they have. And what they do is they'll, they'll traipse around on a deer, which, by the way, is an incompetent host. For some reason, these pathogens don't survive well in the deer system. So the ticks are not giving the deer or taking from the deer uh, microbes that can cause illness. But the deer is the oh. biggest culprit and, the, and a great target for them. They're, mu- they're much more transient than a lot of other animals and they can move around. Um, and the males will search for a feeding female in the adult stage and mate while she's feeding and then after the male does his business, he's he dies. So that's the, his last hurrah. And then she'll feed, fall off, and then lay these eggs. But, you know, if you think about it, let's say five fully fed pregnant females can drop off one deer per day in the fall during the hunting season. And if one deer is in my backyard tonight, drops five ticks, and then a mile down the road tomorrow night, drops five ticks you know that's like fifteen thousand eggs in my yard and then down here and then the next wow. night and and that's how it it uh it, it you know the spreading is is uh, occurs and so um we're seeing a lot of circular spreading especially now with climate change right. um so northwest east south it's all it's all occurring and that's why we're into so many issues i start busting out the flamethrower just to go and do my lawn every couple of weeks or whatever yeah well typically they're not in the middle of your lawn so you're pretty safe but um if you are looking for ways to tick proof your yard do the perimeters uh, mostly i mean every night you turn out the lights i mean you know throw a camera out there in your yard you'll see you've got things traipsing around there 
you know, all sorts of critters yeah. uh, from here, skunks and raccoons and coyotes and foxes and, and all the birds that come in in and out. So, but ticks prefer not to be in an open uh, manicured lawn. They prefer right. to be on the edges under the leaf litter where the moisture is being held and, and they can be protected. And then they'll climb up and down in the winter when it's cold. And when we have little thaws and breaks in the, in the cold temperatures, they'll, they'll come out in full force. What, uh, what major threat do ticks have? Like what's their predator? What birds? Not much. I mean, there are turkeys and some guinea hens and chickens will eat them. Um, they're not like such a big meal, you know, yeah. I mean, they're small. Um, uh, 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 possums, uh, I understand, will, will do a job on, on ticks. But, you know, it, it's really we're in a losing situation. Well. Yeah, I know that's, there's a high mortality rate depending on where you go. I don't know about down by where you are, but there's actually a lot of moose and stuff in certain areas oh, yeah. uh, in different provinces that uh, they die just from being inundated with so many ticks and just having yeah. blood loss and everything. And they look like shit. Like it's, it's crazy that a little tiny animal will take down a giant animal like that. Well, it's, there's strength in numbers and these winter ticks, <clears throat> especially up here in the U.S. and northern Maine, uh, northern New Hampshire, Vermont even, um, have just gone nuts, though, and they're a much bigger tick. So they're, and, they're, and they seem to live fine in the winter on these, on these moose. And what happens is you have a couple of things. You have the sheer numbers of them and their size taking blood out of the animal and causing anemia. And now you're in the coldest time of the year, where the animal is stressed out anyway. Um, and not only does it cause the anemia, but the moose is irritated by this and starts rubbing so hard that its fur comes off. Now you have patches of direct contact with the skin, you have cold temperatures and you have anemia. The result is pretty, um, you know, pretty expected. So we have a large number of moose dying off as a result. It's really sad. That must be, it's, it's a horrible way to go. Oh, I would imagine. Jesus, I couldn't imagine. <laughs> Yeah, oh, man. Moose, moose lottery numbers are way down now, and the hunting community is getting, uh, you know, is suffering from it because the ticks get to do all the killing instead of the hunters. Yeah, well, yeah, but there's no way to manage it. That's that's the problem from a state uh, perspective. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't. What do you do? Like, how do you stop the spread of ticks? I guess I don't know because you can't just kind of. There's no tick specific spray or or application that you can use that won't affect other animals and the problem with some of the um the chemical applications is they'll kill the pollinators if the if the stuff comes in contact with it so if you are choosing to treat your yard with a what i call a pyrethroid based or the pyrethroid based products which will not only kill ticks they'll kill the good thing is they'll kill ticks and mosquitoes and other yeah. news insects but also the bees and stuff like that but again they have to come in direct contact with it so if you can have someone that's an expert in application and knows how to do the high pressure um, application to turn the leaf litter or to saturate the ground enough to get down into the uh, leaf litter with enough liquid um, you can minimize the exposure to your non your non-intended targets so, uh, yeah, and that's what's in these bandanas that I'm using now. Um, these are for dogs, and they're, oh, yeah. an added, they're an added layer of protection on top of their uh, your preferred flea and tick because 
ticks have to touch this, but if they touch this for even as little as 60 seconds, they will fall off and die a slow, painful death. And dogs going through the brush of the grass with their nose to the ground, a majority of ticks get on their face and they're under the, on the chin and and right here. And then they begin to migrate around to find a place to bite. So um, I recommend these. These are available. I, I do sell these. We, we license them from a company called Insect Shield. Uh, they're not available in Canada, even though they've been widely proven in long-term studies to be safe um, and been, been used by the military, the U.S. military, since after World War II. The Canadian government has not approved these um, uh, for sale yet. Really? Yeah, I don't know why, but it's it's a difficult process, but I license it. So it's not something that I'm directly involved with, but they, you know, you mention it to them and they're like, oh, like, oh my God, you know, it's like pulling teeth to get any movement on, on that. But it is a very good tool, in my opinion, as far as repellents go. Well, while we're on that topic of prevention, what are some stuff that hunters can do when you're in the backcountry to prevent, you know, getting ticks on you? Uh, well, unfortunately, I mean, I think there is a way for the Canadian hunting community to get a hold of permethrin. Permethrin is the substance I'm talking about. It's a yeah. synthetic version of a naturally occurring extract of the chrysanthemum flower. So it, it, it's a, it is a naturally occurring um, <clears throat> compound, but um, people are still have that stigma. It's a synthetic, it's a chemical. Um, uh, but the good thing about uh, permethrin is it doesn't have any scent. So if you're deer hunting, you don't have to worry about, you know, cause I'm a fanatic when it comes to scent control. Um, uh, but the thing about it is it's for apparel only. It's not to be used on your skin, but most of the ticks do come in contact with your outer clothing first, yeah. uh, rather than directly on your skin. And at some point they will travel over it. Um, I have a, I'm an affiliate with insect shield. Uh, there's a link to their products. They do private labels for um, hunting clothing. I think it's uh, there's something called Game Hide and Exficio and um, thing for the, things for the hunting community. They have their own pre-treated, and, and the beauty of Insect Shield is they have a proprietary application method. So I don't know if you've seen the stuff that you can apply yourself. This is pre-applied in the factory, much better process, doesn't leave any room for error, and uh, it lasts much, much longer than the self-applying uh, permethrin. Okay. But that is huge uh, for, for ticks, um, uh, turkey and, and deer or whatever, bear, uh, et cetera. Um, and again, you got to just do your tick checks. I mean, I separate all my hunting clothing. Um, I will throw it in the dryer with the scent killer uh, dryer sheets that I use uh, or spray some um uh, scent killer products on the clothing before I put them in the dryer. Um, just keep in mind some of your more insulated clothing. Uh, you you may want to turn it inside out as well as right side out when you're drying it or keep it in a little bit longer than normal because uh, it may take a while for that heat to penetrate and that lower humidity, dry heat to penetrate some of your more insulated clothing. So, yeah, that's, that's my process. I take get home, take all my clothes and put those in a bag. Like in, I, I have an actual bag for my hunting stuff and put mm-hmm. my clothes in there. Then I'll go have a shower. Mostly yeah. I do it. I do it a lot more in the spring than I do in the fall. I just basically, cause I never really have an issue with ticks in the fall, mostly mm-hmm. in the spring. Yeah. yeah I'm the same. It's don't really run into a hole. I'm not saying they're not there, but 
yeah, yeah. definitely well, yeah, spring time's the only time I really come in contact with them. Yeah, they're there because like I've shot deer, you know, December 18th, 20th, and they're littered in ticks. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of issues more in the fall. I get more ticks on me, but actually that's when I'm out more. Oh, uh, there's a nymphal tick season where they're active now. And that's just last year's larvae turn into this year's nymphs, turn into next year's adults. And then the cycle continues. But we have a fall active season, fall through winter uh, for adult deer ticks. And, and I've been tick hunting on many occasions. And we found, um, you know, the most ticks I, well, in the fall, I did a one and a half, one hour and 45 minute. I was setting up a stand and scouting a property and uh, 105 deer ticks within that time frame on my clothing. Um, Holy you know, crap. Um, those, is, so those, so the people that are listening, they can't see it. We're, uh, oh. we're looking at, uh, they're about the size of a pinhead. They look, those well, are they, nymphs. These are adult deer ticks and they are about the size of a, a um okay assessment. those are the yeah i got you yeah these I think are the most, big ones. these are the yeah. big ones the poppy okay. size nymphs are less likely to carry infection just because of their age but more likely to give you lyme disease because of their size yeah because you're not those are going to be a lot harder not only to see on you but probably to, to detect if they're in you because they're tiny exactly so the uh the idea around my part is that the nymphs are about 20%. So about one in five will have the Lyme bacteria, while the adults are about uh, 50 to 60% carrying. But the adults are much easier to detect, heal, yeah. and to find. So yeah. that's why we have a big spike in reported cases, usually in June, July, because the nymphs are active now. And it takes a couple of weeks for people to get to the doctors and get their their test results and then so it, it's a little bit of a lag but usually uh, june is the highest re uh, month for reported cases uh but yes the and then the second highest amount of ticks that i've found while tick hunting occurred in february after a period of um, three or four days of unusually warm temperatures these ticks just burst onto the scene and oh. we were finding them at 40 to 50 per hour um, on our clothing and on our, on our flags um, so so when you're tick hunting, what do you explain that a little bit? <laughs> tick so hunting. I've never, hot. I've never, I've never heard of anyone actually going out to hunt ticks. <laughs> well, you've never met Tick Man Dan. <laughs> uh, tick hunting is uh, it. It's not as complex as you might, as it sounds. Basically, you can do one of two things. You can, uh, and I built my own, and we call it a flag. Uh, I I took a, a a dowel and I stapled a towel to it like a flag and I just go through the brush and swing it back and forth because remember I told you about questing yep. that and then you just take the towel every few minutes and you look at it and you pick the ticks off um that's one approach the other approach is just to use yourself as a human sticky trap and just wander through the stuff you know along the, the edges of deer paths and dog trails and you know wherever and then just pick them off your clothing and then of course do a do your tick check when you get home. A lot of people don't recommend that method, but I think if you're out there hunting for ticks, you're, you're pretty tapped in the first place. <laughs> Man, that sounds like when I lived out in Saskatchewan there, like the ticks out there were just disgusting. They, they would be everywhere. Mm. And it actually out there, it didn't seem to matter if I was in the long grass with the horse, like in the horse pastures and stuff, or if I was on my mowed part of my grass, we had to check the kids and everything. And 
my in-laws at the time, they refused to come out after our first year out there, uh, April, May, June, they would not come out there because the ticks were so bad. And I don't know if for those who haven't had a tick on them, I call it the tick itch is how I describe it. Because as soon as you pull one tick off or you find one just crawling on you, it doesn't seem to matter if you've got a little wisp of hair that touches the back of your neck. Mm-hmm. You think you've just found another tick because that's what they feel like to me anyway, like when they're, when they're crawling on me and the years that I was out on the oil patch building leases and stuff, I don't know how many of my coworkers saw me jump out of my bulldozer onto the tracks and I am stripping gear off boots are yeah. flying the whole nine yards and I'm literally down to my underwear in, nice. the middle of, in the middle of nowhere and I'm chucking clothes on the ground and everything because I found a tick or two on me and every time I bounce and be like a little hair would touch my neck and that would be it. Like I'm done. <laughs> well, I, you know, I came up with this theory that men can find ticks much easier than women because we're furry. We have these hairs. I, when the tick, the ticks have to get to the skin and when they're crawling up your leg and I've got hair covering my legs, they're bound to, to tickle hairs on the way down to the skin. Yeah. If most women, not all, have shaved their legs and don't have hair on their legs and maybe it's not as easy for them to feel it um so i think that the men are in a better position and so i re- i started recommending that women stop shaving their legs just for this purpose but <laughs> i don't think that's going to go over very well for many women anyway <laughs> so when it comes to the testing of well, I'll just say Lyme disease. That's probably the most, that's probably the disease most people have heard about. Has the testing become more accurate than, I don't know, let's say in the last 20 years, um, I've heard a lot of things where you go to the doctor, you can get tested, or if you got your tick, you can bring your tick in, but a lot of people don't end up doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real big discrepancy in positive and negative tests, or you can go for 50 tests and they're all negative and go for the, your 51st and all of a sudden it's positive. Yeah. So where's yeah. that testing going? Uh, I assume you're talking about Lyme disease testing. Lyme disease is the most common human, one up here. For, for humans. Yes. Right. Because uh, the tick testing is almost virtually hundred percent accurate. I mean, it's 99 okay. point whatever percent. Um, and that's a DNA test, uh, PCR test. So it's, it's very accurate. So getting your ticks tested is one thing, getting yourself tested is another. From what I understand that our standardized two tier testing here in the U S is woefully in, inadequate. And it has been for many years. Uh, there's two parts to it. One is the ELISA E L I S A. And the other is a Western blot. I'm not sure exactly what the standards are in Canada, but um, I wouldn't rely on the results of that, those types of testing at all. Um, it's, that's why this, our CDC is uh, categorizing Lyme as a clinical diagnosis. So <laughs> they're basically saying it really depends on your physician and how experienced they are in a nutshell uh, uh, regarding Lyme disease so that they can make an accurate diagnosis. But the one thing is for sure, if you do get that bullseye rash, you know, that's a pretty clear uh, indication that you do have Lyme disease. But then people are now saying if you take a prophylactic dose of doxycycline at the time of a bite, that'll help knock out the, the, the infection before it takes hold. But at the same time, you're prohibiting the development of a rash, which is a com- confirmed 
diagnosis. So uh, there are private groups right now working on better diagnostics. The, the US government is starting to give a little bit more money towards also the diagnostics. But until, any, until something really good comes up, I don't think uh, we can rely on these, these standard testing. Beyond that bullseye rash, what are some symptoms of Lyme's disease? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty typical of your flu-like symptoms, although with Lyme, um, you can have severe joint problems. You can have uh, heart cardiac arrhythmias due to uh, carditis, which is a swelling of the sac around the heart. Um, and you can get an AV block. Uh, yeah, I think it's called AV block, which is just, it messes with the rhythm of your heart. It can cause all sorts of arrhythmias. Um, I mean, I've known a doctor who was uh, down at Duke who had such bad heart problems from Lyme that he had to actually have a transplant. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a very, he was an advocate for better treatments and he was working on a lot of good stuff, but you know, the typical stuff I've heard, you know, people, middle-aged professional, you know, energetic individuals just being laid out for months in bed, just can't even get up uh, the pain and the fevers and, you know, it's uh, the, the migraines um, it's, oh, there's a million different things that, you know, people have claimed, uh, uh, are symptoms of Lyme. So you would probably know it if you were being affected by it. It's just a matter of making sure that the diagnosis is correct and that the antibiotics are given appropriately. Gotcha. So a lot of those, does it eventually, does it get better? Like if you get Lyme disease, do you event, does your body eventually fight it off or is it just something you got to live with? Well, it depends. It's like every individual is different. So I like to say that there's a if you take a, the whole percentage or 100% of the people that, um, that get it bitten by ticks, you'll have a small percentage of people that I believe like me and other people I've spoken to who have been bitten hundreds of times, literally, and have never actually had Lyme disease or a tick-borne illness. Then you have the majority of people that get bitten, they can get Lyme disease, get treated and be completely fine. And then on the other extreme, you have a group of people that could be bitten one time and their lives are completely ruined. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, again, it's an individual thing. And some of the um, projects that I've heard about are looking at it from, a, a, I think, genomics involved with it to identify certain gene patterns that will help determine um, what your body's reaction to this infection will be and therefore how to individualize treatment options based upon genetic makeup. Um, I mean, these are very complicated research approaches, mm -hmm. ones that, you know, I'm certainly not directly involved with, but, you know, I do a tremendous amount of reading up on this stuff. So this stuff has been kind of percolating around in the Lyme community for, for years now. And it's just, it's hard to get a, a focused well-funded approach that, you know, I mean, it's not like we, we don't have any other divert, you know, mm -hmm. diversions yep. going on you know, like COVID or wars or, yeah. or unre civil unrest and, you know, people shooting schools and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just not 
uh, I guess, a conducive environment to really focus in on any particular type of project like Lyme. Yeah, it's not a really a priority. I get it. Um, yeah, cause I, I think that's, I mean, when people think of ticks, they just associate Lyme disease with ticks. But listening to you, there's definitely a lot of other stuff that you have to be worried about with ticks. Absolutely. You know, but so you have to generalize, like I said, yeah. you get bitten, get it off correctly and get it off quickly yeah. and your checks and, you know, take the proper steps. Like I said, don't ever throw away that ticket holds information um, that, that you can use uh, take advantage of the resources out there. Like the tick spotters network I mentioned from university of Rhode Island yeah. and um, you know, make sure that you, you clean up the bite site, make sure you, you know, there's just a lot of basic things that you can do that will help tremendously that I think people are just not doing. Yeah. Yeah. I had a tick on my shoulder. I yarded it out of there, but I took a good, good little extra meat that it was around. I just dug my two fingernails together and I pinched off and it bled like a bugger, but I wanted to make sure I got below where it was in my shoulder and my shoulder. So. Yeah. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Although um, I would recommend the pointy tweezers. But, yeah. um, <laughs> it was more just a reaction. I was like, I felt something and I yeah. pulled my shirt down. I was like, Oh, and I just dug my two fingers, grabbed my skin and just ripped. People can't see here, but you, what you want to get down below, there's like a little shell at the base of the, the ticks abdomen. Yeah. Want to come in flat against the skin, right? Where the skin meets the tick. And then just squeeze firmly and then lift straight up. Right. And that's going to be your best chance to remove it correctly without squeezing the soft part of that tick, without rupturing it or, or agitating it too much. And yeah, you know, I'll put a I'll put a link up with uh, to your webpage so guys can check out your tweezers there. And basically, you you're wanting they're a little different than a set of generic tweezers. They kind of have a little hook on them almost, and then you that allows you to get under to get you to what is that the stem or the what did you call that thing again? Where you're grabbing of the tick? Oh, on the tick, it's the hypostome. It's just hypostome. the mouth. It's the mouth yeah. part. And that way yeah. you're not squeezing any, because with a regular pair of tweezers, you're going to be squeezing the tick's body actually, right? When you're pulling it out, that you're that, avoiding all that and you're you're getting it, I guess. Right. You want to use its head, very but, tips. These are very precision tips. Yeah. So you and, and I put a 45 degree angle on it so that you're able to get flat to the skin without being in an awkward position. So you're able to more accurately grasp the tick in the mm -hmm. proper location, which is right against the skin and as down low as you can possibly be on that tick, because that shuts off any possible transmission of fluid through that, that hypostome. And if you have flat tip tweezers, which were designed to remove hair, not ticks, um, you do risk the, the potential of squeezing it on the soft part of the abdomen or potentially tearing it. And that's what you want to avoid. Plus the, uh, the backside of the ticky stainless steel tweezer is the scoop for those uh, bigger ticks uh, that you find on your, on your pets. What about the small ones? What's the best way to get those off? If you do find one. Same thing. I yeah. have some really good videos. Um, uh, we've got about 42,000 subscribers now on YouTube, but the YouTube channel, if you just search tickies and go to the channel, I've got some really good, uh, videos of me removing all sizes of ticks, all from animals, from people, and uh, nymphs, adults, you, you, you know, whatever you can imagine, I've got it down, down there. So we, uh, we still, that's why the fine tips are important to even get those small nymphal stage ticks out. 
right is do they prefer like how how like some people have really tough skin is there certain areas of your body like say the palm of your hands that they wouldn't be able to get in like they wouldn't be able to penetrate through uh i would imagine would... the calloused areas are tough because they they only you know their hypostones are short like a mosquito like how do, right. you, how do you penetrate through you know a thick part of your skin like the the heel of your foot but, yeah um they typically will search for those warm moist areas that are hard you know out of the way and thinner skins uh behind the ears uh behind the knees i get them under my arms i get them a lot of them i get on my side of my rib cage under my arms uh along the belt line and of course anywhere in your private region is all fair game i've also had them feeding between my toes and in my belly button so nothing's off limits but of course they like anything else would prefer the path of least resistance yeah. and they don't want to be detected so what was the what did, what was the biggest tick you found on you like how long it had been on there how much blood did it get out of you because i've seen like i i pulled this tick off that bear i shot last year and it was the size no kidding it was huge it was yeah. the size of like its body was the size of a nickel like it oh was massive God. yeah it was i I could like, not, oh my. How do you not know that? that it's, it's, I mean, that took days to get that way. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, well, it was on a bear, but that bear was, it was covered. Oh, in it was ticks. on a bear. I thought it was on yeah. you. No, no, no. It was on a bear. It was covered in ticks. Yeah. Like, that bear had, I couldn't believe it. It was gross. How many ticks were on that? And they were, they were, yeah, they were just swollen right up. I can't bear to listen to that story anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. What was what was the original question? Oh, how what how from me? Yeah, on you. What was the big? You've been bit what two hundred twenty five times? Yeah. You, said? you know what? What? Yeah, about two hundred twenty five times. I'm estimating, uh, but give or take a couple of bites. Um, I don't really allow them to get fully engorged. The the nymphs were fully engorged. Uh, the deer ticks because again, there's a small percentage of people who have a sensitivity to. Uh, um, the tick saliva itself, regardless of whether it's carrying germs or not. I believe I'm in that category because even when a larval tick bites me, I get a red itchy welt, uh, similar to like a mosquito bite, which starts yeah. to, to kind of sting and, and itch at the same time. I don't know any, but uh, many other people that have that type of reaction to a tick bite. And that's the problem. So I'm lucky in that sense that um usually that alerts me that i have a tick on me most people don't get alerted right so as far as the biggest tick on me i, I it hasn't been too engorged but probably you know 12 hours maybe of a, oh, of yeah. a deer tick yeah. but as far as fully engorged yes i have and that was the case in my belly button with these nymphs because i just uh, you know you didn't know they're there Oh, and I, I'm not sticking my finger in my belly button, but at one point it did start to itch and I looked down and sure enough, uh, on two occasions that had occurred. Oh, nasty. But the biggest tick on that YouTube channel under tickies, if you search for, uh, I think it's something regarding a little girl, tick removal from little girl. This girl had a dog tick on the back of her head. She was a four-year-old girl. I was actually eating lunch in a restaurant, I'd just given a tick seminar and my truck was outside that said tickies on it. And the waitress comes running through, where's the tick guy? What do we do? We found, <laughs> one of our customers just found a tick on his daughter. So I went out, 
and we did and we filmed it the the removal i got a release and and we he the father filmed it and this tick was huge you look it up it it's just right on the back of her head and um um you know little kids are notorious for not paying attention to their bodies you know like that um so that was the biggest tick i've ever pulled off a human wow it was about the size of a blueberry oh they're just i'm like i don't know right in the back of her head but if you look at it you'll be amazed i will i could tell pete's already looking at it (laughs) i'm trying to find it here Uh, Uh, anyway uh i think i think uh maybe we'll wrap it up we've uh you know you got a long weekend and appreciate your time where can uh everybody find you and and all that stuff yes thank you for asking um the website here in Boston is www.tickease, that's T-I-C-K-E-A-S-E.com. If anybody wants to reach out and give me a call, I do respond um, as quickly as I can. It's a toll-free number, 855-TICK-READY. And uh, you can always email me through the website if you have any questions and you can purchase items and uh, actually, we're always looking for distributors in, in Canada. So if any of your uh, viewers, listeners uh, might have retail contacts and they want to talk about Tiki's, um, happy to make that contact as well. Awesome. Awesome. That was going to be my next question. If your products are available to Canadians and they are, obviously, that's great. Well, we are looking at a big chain in Canada right now, we're discussing it maybe for 2023, uh, but uh, hopefully it will keep our fingers crossed. Uh, we have a few little outlets that are selling it and um, we, we want to continue to expand and help uh, our, our Northern friends. That's awesome. You got anything to add there, Pete? Well, good luck with that expansion there. It'd be awesome. Thanks. We're going to add a couple new items too. Excellent. Cool. Okay, Dan, thanks a lot. Eh? It was uh, very very interesting. I'll say that. I, it's freaking <laughs> I got the ticket now and I got to go yeah, for a hike. <laughs> so to yeah. me, I'm sitting here and I, yeah, but, yeah, but we got to be aware. We can't just, you know, ignore it and hope it goes away. Cause it's not. And, and yeah, you it know. seems like it's getting worse. It seems like just, just ever yeah. never ending just every year. It seems like there's more and more and more and more and more and more tickets. You're right. So. Okay. Thanks Dan. Talk to you later. All Pete. Right. All right. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Yeah, you too. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in to the Focus Hunting Podcast. It's coming at you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Quick shout out to the sponsors of the show, Vortex Optics, the best in optics, period. Backroads Maps Books, never get lost with Backroads Maps. AKU Boots, you owe it to your feet. Scree Hunting Gear. Now, if you guys check the show notes, you're going to find some promo codes. Use them, save a bit. Love you guys. Talk to you soon.